The U.S. Women's National Team names its 18-player Olympic roster. We break down who's in and who's out as the manager, Vladko Andonovsky, makes the biggest decision of his managerial tenure. Meanwhile, in MLS, he's back. Carlos Vela returns, and his first goal of the season powers LAFC to a win. Are the preseason favorites now finding midseason form? Plus, the pipeline from North America to Europe is open and running. We're Don Quixote waving our sword at the rumor mill as transfer season heats up. All that and plenty more starting now on Football Americas. Welcome into the show. I'm Sebi Salazar here on ESPN Plus without my trusty sidekick this week. No Hercules Gomez in attendance on a well, well-earned vacation with his beautiful family. Now they say, someone said once, you can never replace Hercules Gomez. But here on this edition of Football Americas, we sure are going to try. You're going to hear from Julie Fowdy on the U.S. Women's National Team. You're going to hear from Mauricio Pedrosa on some young Mexican players who could be moving overseas. And you're going to hear from Jake Edwards, the president of the USL. All that to come here on Football Americas. And listen, literally, you can listen to the show too. The podcast available now on the ESPN app, on the ESPN website, and anywhere you get your podcast. Just find it under the ESPN FC feed. All right, let's welcome in. Our first guest here on Football Americas, Alejandro Moreno. You know him from ESPN FCs all over our coverage right now of the European Championships, calling games in studio, and yet still he makes time for us here on Football Americas. Not a good friend of the program, Ale, a great friend of the program. Welcome back. <laughs> first of all, you can replace Hercules. <laughs> Let me tell you something. He is replaceable. And... I, I saw pictures of him. Was he at the San Diego Zoo? Is that what he's doing? Is that why I'm here? Because he's at the Zoo? All right. Hey, man. Excellent. Glad to be he's here. Hard. Glad to be with you, Seb. You know how special you are to me. I know. I know. He's a hard worker. We got to give him some time off uh, somewhere and all this. All right. Let's get to... Uh, let me think. I'm thinking about your career. You played... You won three MLS Cups, but you also played for Chivas USA. So you're literally the perfect person to walk us through an MLS good, <laughs> bad, and ugly. Let's start with the good from the midweek action. We'll start with LAFC, Carlos Vela, who gets his first goal of the season and an assist as LAFC beats FC Dallas 2 nothing. First goal of 2021 for the 2019 MVP. LAFC now 3-3-3 three, three, and three on the season. They're right on that playoff line in the Western Conference. Ale, they were everybody's preseason favorite. Are they now back to being the favorites to win MLS Cup? If Carlos Vela stays healthy, if he stays fit, and if he's scoring goals, then LAFC are right there in the conversation. And yes, they should be favorites. Everything that LAFC has done up until this moment or up until this season was trending in the direction of MLS Cup or else. And that hasn't changed. The only thing that has changed is the fact that Carlos Vela hasn't been healthy. And so, of course, that reflects very poorly on how LAFC has done in terms of their record. If he's healthy, if he's fit, if he's productive, then LAFC will very much be part of the conversation. If he's not, then see you guys later. Yeah, those are all big ifs, too. He doesn't get his first goal till what, June 23rd? Wasn't in his first game back either after the long injury layoff. I think this was his fourth game back since coming back 
from the injuries. 32 years old. We've heard him earlier on this very show said he was taking a vacation uh, over the last year. However, he did say this last night. This is the Carlos my team expects. I love a guy with the confidence to speak in the third person. Uh, here's another reason why I would say they're probably MLS Cup favorites, Alex. They still have a designated player spot. It's just Rossi and Vela. Brian Rodriguez is out on loan. Uh, if you were to give a magic wand to Bob Bradley, our good friend here on Football Americas, to fix his team with a DP, <laughs> any suggestions for what you would do with that position? Well, we know what Diego Rossi can do. We know what we can expect from Carlos Vela. What we don't know is what you're going to get from Caleb Jennings. Mm. what you're going to get from some player that steps into that center striker position because it seems to be by committee. If Carlos Vela is going to have the freedom to roam around in the final third and in the attacking half so he can go on the right, he can go underneath, he can go on the left, he can do whatever he wants because that's his role. And Diego Rossi is then going to fill in the gaps to wherever Carlos Vela is not and Diego Rossi is going to be on that other side. There still has to be a player in that position that connects all of that that is able to play with his back to goal, that is able to be sort of as a post-up or a pivot player, so that then Carlos Vela can run off of him or Diego Rossi can run off of him. That player does not exist right now at LAFC. I know it's not popular to ever suggest that a team would use a designated player spot on a goalie, but LAFC have had goalie mm. issues for a long, long time. If they could find the right guy to fill that hole, I think that could be super useful. All right, let's go from the good, Ale. To the bad and this is both bad last night but but starting to get really bad big picture toronto fc uh they lose 3-2 to nashville and this is after going ahead in the 81st minute they give up a goal in the 83rd the 92nd they have now lost four straight it's the second worst start in franchise history and ale for those people who've been following mls for a while that's saying something there used to be some really bad starts for toronto fc there was a time 10 years ago where this team was Mediocre might be generous. Are they headed back to mediocrity? When you allow a guy with the sort of success and resume like Greg Vanny to walk out that door and you are now sort of projecting into the future and you're thinking, well, you know what? We still have essentially the same team that we had in place last year. We're just going to fit in Chris Armas into this position and everything is going to be okay. And now we look to Bill as Toronto FC uh, looks to become that sort of dominant team that we expect them to be in the Eastern Conference. There's one minor piece that, or major, if you will, that you're forgetting. Greg Vanny makes a difference. Greg Vanny turned this team around. Greg Vanny was indeed the architect if you will, when you think about it, of the success that they had on the field. That guy is not just any other coach. And I think that's the manner in which he was treated in Toronto. In that, you know what? He can walk out that door because we can find somebody else who can come in here and do the job. And what they're finding is that, well, that's not quite the case. And this is not all on Chris Armas. This is now on what the future of Toronto SC looks like because the era of Josie Altidore and Michael Bradley, while very successful and very productive for Toronto SC, that's coming to an end. But what is the next phase of Toronto SC? And that's, I think, what you're referring to here. We don't quite know what it looks like. And so far, the early returns of that next era, next phase of Toronto SC, it doesn't look all that great.
Yeah, we've hardly really mentioned the Josie Altidore fiasco, but it does look like he's well on his way out. You mentioned Greg Vanny. Tim Bezbachenko, also a big part of building that team, no longer there. Sebastian Giovinco, huge part of the Toronto FC that was really great. But Ale, let's be honest here. It's also money, right? When they won it all in 2017, they had the highest payroll in the league by like $5 million. I don't know, as you suggest, that Toronto FC is still that team, if they're still willing to pay all that money. And in a league where you got to spend to be good, I think that's going to be a decisive factor, whether they can really become the team that they were a few short years ago or if they are indeed headed down a spiral. All right, let's go bad to ugly. And this is ugly very, very frequently. The San Jose Earthquakes, when they lose Ale, it is real ugly. They lose 5-0 to Orlando. They've allowed the most goals in the Western Conference so far this season. They are 10th out of 13 teams. Matias Almeida was the chic, the cool pick when San Jose brought him to this league in 2018. Should he be on the hot seat? <laughs> yes. I mean, yes. Yes, very much yes. Is this football Americas? Let's just not say it's hot. Caliente is what it is right now. <laughs> it is burning hot when it comes to Matias Almeida. And the reason I say that is because when you look at this team and you evaluate it, you don't just have to look at this season. Go back to last September, 2020, and look at some of the results. We're talking about 7-1 to Seattle, 6-1 to Portland, 5-0 to Colorado. They were losing games left and right and allowing goals left and right. And you may have just thought, well, there's no chance he survives this. And somehow they, they were able to string a few results together. They get into the playoffs and everybody seems to forget about it because now everybody says, Look at the fight of this team. Look at the character. Oh, look at them, how they were able to recover from that disappointing month and they were able to make a run into the playoffs. And you're forgetting the fact that you lost 7-1, 6-1, and 5-0 within a couple of weeks of each other. Now, the other thing I would say about Matias Almeida, his staff, and his team, one of the toughest things for a coach is to find consistency within a team. That you have a certain level of play. And your very best kind of takes you a couple levels above that and your very worst just kind of keeps you right there. You, that the, the contrast between the, your best and your worst cannot be so steep. And what we see mm -hmm. from the San Jose Earthquakes is that their best is not all that great. And their worst is awful. It's not bad. It's awful. And when you see that, that swing of emotion in a team, not only look on the field. Look at the swing of emotions in that bench and look at the lack of organization in that bench where there's people coming and going everywhere and emotion and arms are up and everything. That team is disorganized on the field and is disorganized on the bench as well. To your point about the results last year, there were seven games last year where they shipped four or more goals. Not two or more, not three or more, but four or more goals. Those kind of <laughs> disastrous results that in other parts of the world might get a manager fired. I would suggest San Jose is not that part of the world. I don't think this team's that ambitious. He's got at least two years left on his deal. I don't see San Jose paying two managers, and you know he didn't come cheap from Liga Mekki. So uh, far, far, far from me thinking we've seen the end of Matias Almeida. The other side of this game, by the way, Ale, so, was something... Wait, wait, yeah. wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. So it's not, it's not caliente then? It's no, the, the hot no. seat is it should. Tibio. I agree with it's you. It's tibio. It's lukewarm. Yep. Yep, I agree with you that it should be, but I don't think that it is. All right, uh, what could be hot are the transfer rumors around the next 
topic of discussion. Daryl DK, who had a brace in the game against San Jose. Look, everybody scores against San Jose. Not that big a deal, but he's coming off a great stint in the championship. Ali, I gotta be honest, I'm surprised that we're even seeing him back in Major League Soccer, seeing him back with Orlando. It is the summer transfer window. There should be some interest. We know there was interest before, reportedly from a Premier League team. Where do you think he should be playing? What's his level? Not here. Not in MLS. Once you've taken the jump that he took and you've been successful as he was in his short stint over there, I, I would have thought that the last thing that he wanted to do was come back to MLS. Not because he thinks any less of MLS, it's because he's already made the jump. He's already used MLS as that, that sort of jump start to his career. And now he's used that stepping stone to find himself somewhere else. And I think best case scenario for him is that he would find a team in the Premier League. I don't know how realistic that is, but I can tell you that it feels like him coming back to Orlando is a little bit of a holding pattern. It's, it's not so much like he's gonna, his career is going to take off with Orlando. He's already, his career is already taken off somewhere else. That's where he should be, not back here in MLS. As much as we like to see him play, I don't think this is a place for him right now at this point in his career. Orlando wants a lot of money for him. Uh, according to some of the reports out of England, the option that Barnsley had was $20 million dollars but for only 80% of DK's pass. So they're valuating him at, at over $20 million. That's a lot of money. If he keeps scoring, I guess you might get that. But if he stops scoring in MLS, probably that transfer value drives down, right? And Orlando might be sitting with a far less valuable asset. One thing I would say is they got him out of the Super Draft. So any millions that they get for him are, are still pretty good business for an Orlando team that, let's be honest, has not been known for good business. Speaking of good business... New York Red Bulls are doing business with RB Leipzig. Caden Clark, the youngster, the teenager, uh, will be joining RB Leipzig. He's going to stay with the New York Red Bulls on loan for the rest of the season before going over to join Tyler Adams and Jesse Marsh. Big picture here, Ali. What does this mean for Major League Soccer? It's the similar conversation that we had about Brandon Aronson, and is that you are seeing academy products, uh, players that have gone through all the stages within their club. They get to the first team, they're successful with the first team, and then they open doors somewhere else, and they're able to then find success somewhere else. And I think it's a great story for MLS. It's a great story for the New York Red Bulls. It's a great story for the Philadelphia Union in terms of Brandon Harrison. And those are the sort of stories that you want. Here's the only thing that I would say. These stories are happening once every so often. It would be ideal if this were happening with more consistency. The reason we make a big conversation about it and it becomes a topic for us is because, hey, there's another young kid going over to Leipzig, going over to Europe, going elsewhere. Those are all positive, but we want this to be the norm. We don't want to have to get excited every time a kid makes this jump. We want this to, make, to be what is supposed to happen. Yes, we nurture talent, we develop this talent, and now this talent is, go, is ready to flourish, whether that's MLS or whether that's somewhere else. And when that becomes the norm, when that becomes something that we now accept as the reality for MLS, that's when we'll know whether MLS has become the league that we want it to be. I feel like it's starting to become the norm, but only for like a few teams, right? New York Red Bulls, definitely one of them. Mm. I think Philadelphia Union put into that category. FC Dallas as well. RSL plays their kids a lot. Let's see if they start, you know, selling them on to Europe. 
um, as well. We see more and more of this from MLS. It's obviously, Ale, it's great for the league. It's money for New York Red Bulls. The one thing I would say from a fan perspective, if you're a New York Red Bulls fan, I wonder how you feel. Because it's not like Tyler Adams, who you see at the top of this list, who played a couple years, helped you win a supporter shield, was a part of some good teams. You got to fall in love with the player and then sent him off. Caden Clark's going to be here for what, basically his breakout season, uh, and then he's gone. When you put it in the context of RB Leipzig and how they treat Salzburg and now how they're starting to treat New York, does it feel a little minor league if you're a New York Red Bulls fan? Well, I think what it feels like is that we are in a position where MLS is more of a seller league than it is a buyer league. And, and and so I don't know that MLS wants to shy away from that and I don't think that New York Red Bulls or any other team should shy away from that because you need that return on the investment that you've put forth on this player in particular uh, in the case of Kane Clark or in the case of Tyler Adam you have invested time and you have invested money in this player you need to see return on that investment whether that's playing for you on the weekend or whether that's on millions of dollars that whatever the potential sale of this player would be. That's the business of soccer. And it's the business of soccer not only in Europe but around the world. And if you want to strengthen your academy, if you want to strengthen that, uh, that ability to continue to nurture and develop talent, well, you need funds to put into that system. And where do you get that money from? Well, some of that has to be the fact that you'll be, you're able to sell players. You have to be willing to accept this. It's not the best part for the New York Red Bull fans, but guess what? It is part of the reality of transactions around the world. And if you want to be a major player around the world in terms of what you do with transactions, then this is part of, this is a byproduct of that. 10 seconds on the clock. How many things can you name that are always growing? Your relationships, your skills, your customer base. How about businesses on Shopify? <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash network, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash network now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash network. Well, hey, howdy, folks. My name's Ted Lasso. It's our honor and pleasure to officially introduce to y'all U.S. Olympic women's soccer team. Let's do it. Team captain Becky Sauerbrunn, Crystal Dunn, Kelly O'Hara. We got Abby Dahlkemper, the magical Rose Lavelle, cultural icon, Mega Rapino, the legendary Carly Lloyd, super duper soccer mom extraordinaire, Alex Morgan. You should learn the local language while you're over there in Japan. Please bring me 1,000 donuts quickly. What does that mean? I do not speak Japanese. You know what would look real nice next to, uh, you know, one of them golden hats from a hat trick? Gold medal. Uh... All right, in one of the uh, cooler roster announcements in recent history, the U.S. Women's National Team having Ted Lasso, none other than Ted Lasso, announced the Olympic roster here to break it down. Julie Foudy, who joins us on Football Americas. I'm guessing from that smile, you're a big Ted Lasso fan, yeah? Oh, massive. When I saw that, I was like, oh, this is the best lineup rollout ever, <laughs> hands down. I love him. 
Agreed, agreed. Shout out, exactly. Shout out to Coach Beard, too, as well. We, uh, we can't forget the assistance in all this. All right, Julie, let's dive into this roster, this 18-player roster for Tokyo. I think it's safe to say there's not a ton of surprises in the 18 players as we see them there that Vodko and Anofsky picked. Uh, just 30,000 feet. What's your biggest takeaway on the team that's headed to Japan? Biggest takeaway is Tobin Heath and the fact that she's been out for six months. Her last game was December 20th back in England. And she has yet to play a game, but she's on that roster. And it talks about the importance that Vlako Andonovsky believes she can bring even with limited minutes, even without any game time. And so that's the one thing I think was the big question mark was would he take both Tobin Heath and Julie Ertz. Of course, we always felt with Julie Ertz, she had, has only been injured uh, a couple months, that that was a go. But Tobin Heath was the real question mark. But yeah, no surprises, largely. Christy Mewis getting a look um, at her first major championship, which is great for her, 30 years old. Of course, older sister to Sam Mewis. So both Mewis sisters get a go, which is fantastic for them. She's had a, a great NWSL year and a half. Uh, and I, I, I think that... Um, is a good move, but I did. Well, I'll stop there. I'll stop there, Sandy. I'll keep going for another hour if I don't. I know, I know. There's plenty to uh, dissect on this roster. Interesting you mentioned Heath and Ertz. We keep hearing that they're on schedule to be ready for the Olympics. You obviously hope that's the case. One thing that stood out to me was the lack of turnover. I mean, basically, Vladko Andonovsky has taken Jill Ellis's squad to the Olympics. So the 18 players, 17 were at the World Cup. It's two years ago. And there were options to kind of refresh or renew the yeah. squad, too. L listen to these names. Andy Sullivan, Midge Purse, Alana Cook, Katarina Macario, Sophia Smith. Those are players who could probably help this U.S. team now. But certainly for the future, I think you would want them to maybe get some big game experience. One other talking point that people are really focused on, Julie, is the age of this team. The average age of this roster is over 30 years old. Sometimes in sports, I think we oversimplify, right? We say older is bad um, and younger is better. But I don't know that that's actually true. Like, experience tends to win out. So is the age of this team a good thing or a bad thing? Had it been like it was supposed to happen, where the games were actually played in 2020, I think it would have been a challenge. Because that's the hard part about the turn from a World Cup, and especially winning a World Cup. It's why no one has done that back-to-back win a Women's World Cup, win the Olympics the very next year, it's a hard turn and your body does need a little bit of rest. And especially after you win, you're out doing appearances, you're trying to capitalize on this small window of viability. And so I think actually the fact that the Olympics have been delayed a year helps those older players because Carly Lloyd had been injured. She's recovered. Megan Rapino got to rest her body. She says she's felt more rested than she ever has in her career right now. Alex Morgan, of course, was, would have been really struggling to make it back post-pregnancy um, if it had, had taken off in 2020. So I think that year delay actually means that older roster concerns me less. Yeah, and that experience is super valuable, right? We saw it in the World Cup. Spain, France, England, Netherlands, all those games that they won in the knockout phases, they kind of overtook those teams late in the game. So it's not like they're old and unfit. They're clearly fitter than everybody else. And maybe you would even say those younger teams kind of choked under the pressure of the U.S. One of the players that definitely brings up that average age, Julie, is Carly Lloyd, headed to her fourth Olympics. We know her as a superstar, but honestly, what kind of role do you think she's going to have at these games? 
Well, this is where I think Vlaco's done a very good job of just being clear about, look, I need you in this roster. I need you on this team, but here's what it's going to look like. And he's pretty much spelled it out already. I think she'll come off the bench in the first game. She'll probably get the start in the second game. She'll come off the bench in the third game. And the beauty of Carly Lloyd is she is still scoring at a very high rate. She is still making an impact when she comes into games. If you can just say to her, look, I can't start you every single game, and you probably don't want this at 39 years old, but here's the rotation, and it gives them a lot more options with their starting lineups, especially with only two days rest, to be able to say to Alex Morgan, you're going to come back in, but I'm going to give Carly this go so I can rest you a little bit more. Right, so if she does play, which, of course, if she's on the roster, we assume she will get some playing time at some point in the tournament. She'll break Christy Rampone's record as the oldest U.S. woman to play in the Olympics. I think she's going to have a say in this tournament. Those 125 goals somewhere down the road, uh, that'll come into play. All right, that's who did make it. Don't bet against Carly Lloyd. Don't bet against it. And if you do, don't say it publicly because she will write it down, remember it, and never forget it. (laughs) All right, let's get to the players that didn't make it. Uh, Let's start with a look at the alternates. There are four players who are going as alternates. So, uh, in effect, it's an 18-player squad, but there are 22 uh, players that will be available. It's Jane Campbell as the third goalie, Casey Kruger, formerly Casey short uh, in defense, Katarina Macario and Lynn Williams. There are other players as well, Julie, but as we look at the players that didn't make it, um, I wanted to get a biggest snub out of you. You didn't want to use the word snub, though. You wanted to use the word miss, and you wanted to use it on Katarina Macario. Why miss? Is it a miss from Vladko Andonovsky, or is it a miss from Macario, a missed opportunity? I, I think a little bit of both, and that's why it's not a snub, because It's just some bad luck on Katerina Macario's part. One, she makes the decision to leave Stanford, go to Lyon, play professionally, a great club as we know, but then they have COVID issues. So once she has to leave, she believes cut early. She doesn't get to finish those games off because the club wants her back and has demanded her back. So she doesn't get a look in March earlier this year. And then COVID hits that entire club. And so she doesn't get to come into the April friendlies as well because of that. She didn't get COVID, but because of contact tracing, she didn't get another look. And so I don't think Blacko could have taken her uh, based on that. But I think this is a player, and with a little bit more roster room, more than 18, which is so ridiculous, that's a whole other segment we could do, that they're keeping this at 18 at the moment. Uh, heading into the Olympics with all that's going on. I think she makes it because she's one for the future. And she's one that brings a ton of versatility. As we know, she could play up front. She could play in the middle. She can play out wide. She can play in the 10. Um, and it's a player that has a ton of upside. And so mm. I would have hoped that they would have been able to see her a little bit more so that she could get in that squad. Macario, probably one of those players who you say, like, I'd love to see her in the squad, but if I put her in, I don't know who I'm really taking out. I think you might say the same about Lynn Williams, a good player, a player who could definitely help this team. But when you compare to the other options, um, you, you, you can see why Vlad Goyanovsky makes the choice. All right, let me give you who I thought were my biggest snobs. And I'm going with players that not only didn't make the 18, Julie, I'm going with players that didn't even make the 22. Um, for me, the obvious one is Midge Purse, right? She showed her versatility. She could play right back. She could play right wing. She's playing super well at the club level right now for Gotham FC. And she has something that I don't think any other player on the team has other than maybe Rose Lavelle. And that's the ability to carry the ball at speed, 40, 50, 60 yards, change the game, at the very least change field position for this team. And in a tournament situation, 
Uh, I think that's valuable. I was surprised to see her left off. I was also surprised to see Andy Sullivan left off. You mentioned the Julie Ertz injury. Uh, those two players, Julie, I feel like could in some way be very valuable. You surprised not to see them at least included as alternates. Yeah, it, I am surprised in Midge Purse for sure. I think Andy Sullivan, uh, her chances were hurt when Lindsey Horan stepped into that sixth role for Julie Ertz and did such a good job. And you also know that you can get that out of Tiana Davidson, who's on the roster. She's playing the six. Emily Sonnet can play in the six. And so I think Blackwondanowski felt Andy Sullivan became, becomes a little less necessary because I have those other options, and especially with Lindsey Horan playing so well in the six. But... Yes, Mitch Purse, she gives you pace. She gives you a vertical threat. She can play, to your point, on the back line if you need it. She can play, and, and she did that in that exact game against Jamaica. She scores and then shows the potential, then the versatility of being able to move her to the back line in that same game. So that surprised me for sure as well. Julie, excellent stuff as always. Thank you so much for the time, and we hope to have you back here soon on Football Americas. We all know breakfast is an important part of your day, but sometimes when you're traveling for business, you end up staying at a hotel that doesn't offer any. You know what happens? You grab a cup of coffee and skip the meal entirely. We've all been there. But if you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you can enjoy their free bright side breakfast featuring delicious baked goods, fruit, eggs, yogurt, and waffles. And really, who doesn't want to start their day with a fresh, hot waffle? Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. Joining us now on Football Americas, Jake Edwards, president of USL. Jake, plenty to get to with you. You're about to launch a new women's league. we got to ask you about MLS stepping into the lower league space. But let's talk about something that we both have had a uh, very active eye on in the last week. Of course, that's the European Championships. Folks who have watched you on this show will know that you are from England. So I'm assuming uh, that you're well-versed on everything that's going on with the three lines. Simple question, is it coming home? <laughs> I'm not sure if it's coming home or if the team's coming home. What, which one happens first? Uh, it's, um, yeah, it's been fantastic to watch. You know, it's, uh, from an England point of view, it's, it's this constant balance of, like, hope. Uh, is this the tournament? And, uh, you know, frustration when you, when you at times watch the team and how they play and, and you know the quality of the players. And, it, and it's, uh, it's playing a very different style of football internationally uh, at these tournaments than, than you see week in, week out. Uh, in the Premier League in terms of the speed and the intensity, etc. So it's, it can be quite frustrating to watch, but we're through uh, and we'll see uh, how we progress now with some of the teams that we're going to come up against. All right, let's get into uh, USLW League. You're going to launch in 2022 with eight teams. There's a lot of buzz around pretty much anything in the business space around women's football. Uh, why right now, though, for the USL to get involved? I think the impetus starts with our owners. The owners were very keen uh, to bring uh, women's football platform uh, into their clubs, into their communities. So owners from the championship, uh, League One uh, and League Two um, have been working with us over the last two years to put a platform together that they could have women's football uh, at, their, at their clubs. So we're very excited uh, now we are here. We've got a lot of work ahead of us between now and kickoff. Um, you know, but we're expecting upwards of 30 clubs uh, to kick off in that inaugural season. So think, we think about the opportunity that provides. That's nearly 750 uh, opportunities to play, uh, coach, work at the front office. So tremendous amount of opportunity to get into uh, to women's football. Um, you know, so we, we are um, thrilled in terms of where we are right now. Uh, we've got a lot of work ahead of us. 
but we're looking forward to kicking off uh, W League in just over a year's time. And it's not something entirely new to USL. There was a kind of W League before from 1995 through 2015. Can you put in context just how much has changed around women's soccer from when that league, you know, folded in 2015 to the decision now to launch this league, which really is not that much far apart in terms of time. It was just six years. Yeah, I think the, the, the whole landscape of football has changed, you know, and the W League has long roots with the USL um, going back many, many years. Uh, and so not only has the women's game changed and, the, and the, the quality and the investment and the infrastructure around the women's game is at a very different place now uh, than it was, and all credit to the Federation, the women's uh, national team, NWSL, and all the folks in CONCACAF that continue to push women's football uh, in this region. have done a tremendous amount of work to grow the sport. Um, so we're really excited to bring the W back uh, and to see the W League brand uh, back in action on the field. So this league will come on in the next line, uh, come online in the next couple of years. So will uh, Major League Soccer's new professional league, which you just found out about. Uh, in the last month or so, they've applied for Division Three sanctioning. So effectively, kind of the equivalent level on the pyramid uh, as USL League One. When you first heard the news that MLS was going to be coming into your, into this space, what was kind of your reaction from the USL perspective? Well, I think you know more uh, more avenues for young players to get into the professional game, more pathways, uh, the better. You know, we're, we're big believers in in that and the opportunity uh, this will provide those young players. Um, you know, this is uh, something we've been in collaboration with uh, MLS over the last few seasons uh, to get to this point to find the right um, platform uh, for that development. And it's been a tremendous partnership with, with both leagues have, have benefited, uh, benefited uh, tremendously from this over the years. So I think it's a natural evolution. Um, you know, for the USL, uh, it doesn't affect what we're doing. It doesn't affect the mission of the USL, and that is to build high-performing clubs, community-based organizations that are relevant in those communities. We want to build clubs that are focused on winning football matches, winning championships, building fan bases, and, and as I say, being uh, uh, authentic representations and reflections of those communities. That's what's brought the USL Championship and League wants uh, so much success. That's where we're going to focus our attention um, moving forward with our clubs and, and the expansion clubs. And so. Um, this is the right move for MLS and for those reserve teams those reserve, for the, to launch the new reserve league. And it'll be the right environment. So we certainly wish them uh, the very best of luck. But um, regardless of what's out there, it doesn't affect that um, overriding uh, mission, and, mission and vision for our clubs and our league. I wonder if in some way does it kind of simplify the mission? You know, I, I look at a, like for instance, I look at a Red Bulls 2 and I think minor league soccer. Uh, I look at some of the clubs that are in USL, and I think professional soccer. There's obviously different goals there, and you kind of touched on it, representing a community, winning games. When you look at these two teams, obviously the point there is to get kids minutes so that they can then help the first team. Does this make USL almost in some way a little bit more competitive? Well, I think going back over the years, I'd say to the MLS two teams that have been part of the USL, um, you know, they've benefited greatly. A lot of good players have now moved into the MLS or the national teams or overseas that um, might not have had they not had the minutes in the USL Championship or League One. So from that point of view, uh, it's met those uh, development objectives for the, for the teams. And from the USL's point of view, it's helped us grow. Uh, and, it's, and they've been an important part of our league over the last few years. Um, 
I think the MLS2 teams will be the first to admit it, and I know they're on record already, that in, in many instances, it's not about winning games. It's not about winning championships. It's not about getting a crowd to come and support that club. Um, and as you reference the New York Red Bulls, uh, who had won the league with that fantastic team they had a few years ago, um, do not draw a crowd to watch their games. And so that's not the purpose of this for them. Um, so the, they, they, the teams would admit that. And, and when you um, see where the USL Championship and USL League One are evolving into now and where they're going, uh, and clubs that are building 80, $100 million stadiums and are putting a lot of time into their communities to build the fan base support, um, that are having thousands and thousands of people come to watch the games. It means something to them to win the league or win, win those matches. Um, th that's what it's about. And, and so there's been a, a natural divergence there of goals and objectives between the growth of the league, how the competition has been, it's been more competitive, the clubs are more sophisticated, the ambitions of the club and the league uh, are, are on a different uh, trajectory than the goals and objectives of, of the MLS teams to develop those players and get them the minutes that they need. And so it is right now that they have to find a place where they can um, meet the development objectives and are not in conflict with um, the other goals and objectives of the other teams in the league. When I think of USL League One, too, I... I I think of your strongest brands, and I'm not thinking MLS two teams. You know, it's like for me being in the DC area, Richmond Kickers have been around forever. Um, that you know, that's a club, a franchise that really represents its community. Forward Madison gets all the buzz on online for their jerseys and stuff like that. I mean, those are really your strongest brands, aren't they? In USL, they're tremendous brands. You know, and we've we've. Um you know, we, we make a point of, of, although we are the league office here in Tampa, we make a point of embracing the individuality of our clubs. They are the reflection of their communities. We do not want a homogenous league. We do not want to tell them how to look and feel. We want them to be the best representations of themselves. And every community is different and every club does it differently. Uh, and that's what it's all about, you know. And you think about uh, the League One clubs moving forward. You, you, you referenced a few there. There's fantastic brands in League One now. It's three years old, League One. And we've got teams like Ford Madison and Union Omaha, Greenville, uh, Tormenta, doing fantastic things, building a brand. Uh, and you've got uh, very historic clubs like Richmond Kickers, one of the longest continually operated professional clubs in uh, America, uh, still going strong and building on what they've done every year. So League One is in uh, fantastic shape. And and that's the model that's appealing. That's what's bringing new investors to us all the time. We've got we've got uh, uh, expansion uh, in Championship and League One now, um, a, a significant amount. And you've seen um, Demarcus Beasley with his Fort Wayne project coming uh, to fruition. We've got hopefully um, Spokane and Portland, Maine, and Spokane, Washington coming into our league soon. We've already announced some great teams coming in next year in Northern Colorado and Fresno. So. Um, that's what's attracting people to League One and the championship is that that local connection to their local communities. Yeah, that and those forward Madison uniforms. Really, that's why I brought up forward Madison. I need some more gear uh, here at ESPN. All right, there he is, uh, Jake Edwards of USL. We appreciate the time here on Football Americas, and we'll do it again soon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Good luck with the rest of the Euros. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. 
With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any 8-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number 8, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature 8-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number 8, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. He did it again. Javier Chicharito Hernandez adding yet another goal for the LA Galaxy this season. It's the winner uh, in the uh, 2-1. Not the game winner, but the uh, the first goal for the Galaxy in their 2-1 win. On the season, that ties them for the top of the goal scorer charts in MLS with Raul Ruiz Diaz, who also has eight. He's got eight goals in nine games played. A very different Chicharito than we saw last year. Now, how about this? This is something that we've seen before from the official Twitter account of the Mexican national team, giving a shout out to some of their convocados playing in that Galaxy Whitecats game. Okay, John Dos Santos, he played 30 minutes. Yeah, check. Efrain Alvarez, yeah, he played 30 minutes and he scored the game winner. There was another dude who played more than 30 minutes and scored as well. But again, the Mexican national team's official Twitter account is pretending like Javier Chicharito Hernandez does not exist. Somebody who we would never, ever pretend doesn't exist here on Football America's good friend of the program, co-host. At this point, we have to say he's hosting it more than me or Herc over the last couple weeks. Mauricio Pedrosa joins us now. Uh, let's start with the tweet. What are they doing? Mal, what are they doing? Why? It's so petty. It's so small. Uh, first of all, it's great to have you again as the host of the show, <laughs> uh, fulfilling your duties, Sebi. Um, I actually have a source inside the social team for El Tri. And he, ex- he tried to explain to me that there is actually a rule in place. If you're not a player that has been part of the roster or hasn't been called up in the last year, they're not going to acknowledge what you do with your club. Now, here's my question. Was not Javier Hernandez part of a 60-man roster recently announced by the Mexican national team two weeks ago. Yes, mm-hmm. he was. So that disrespect now has no limits. I still don't understand it. And I told this source, like, listen, you don't have to explain this rule to me. I know what you guys are doing. And he said, hey, well, that's the official position from someone inside that social team. Very interesting stuff. Our man Mauricio always plugged into what's going on. I, I, and I've, I find the perspective fascinating. They must know the reaction they're going to get every time that they leave him out. You did mention he's on, on the 60-man roster. So he is on a preliminary roster uh, for the Gold Cup. I wonder, Mal, what you think it will take for him to actually get called up. Is it 100 goals in MLS? Is it an injury to Rogelio Funes Mori if and when he does step into the Mexican national team? Or is it pressure from the media? Is it pressure from fans? What's finally going to be the thing that gets Tata Martino to say, okay, fine, you're back? It will take a new president at the Mexican Soccer Federation. It will take a new coach. And it would take Guillermo Choa and Andres Guardado to retire for Javier Hernandez to go back and play for the three. It's just not going to happen. He might score 35 goals. He might break Carlos Vela's record for more goals in a season in Major League Soccer, and he's still not going to be a part of the team. The problems are way deeper than we thought, and at this point, Sebi, I just don't see Javier Hernandez 
with anything in his hands, anything in his power to go back and play for El Tri. So I wonder then why put him on the Gold Cup preliminary roster? That would seem to me like the Federation and Tata and everybody else in some way extending an olive branch. What do you think they're doing? Uh, I don't think it was extending a lot of French. I just think it was uh, Tata Martino and the national team trying to quiet the noise. Mm. Because if you release a 60-man roster and Javier Hernandez is not there, you're pretty much saying he's not a top 60 player in Mexico, which would be the most ludicrous statement ever made by the Mexican Soccer Federation. And trust me, they are used to giving those kind of statements. Uh, so that's why... I understand that's the reason why he was included. Now, when they cut that roster to 48, Chicharito was not a part of the of that list. So what they're saying is Chicharito is, is actually a top 60 player, but he's not a top 48 player in Mexico, which is still completely insane. All right, let's move on to some transfer talk involving Mexican players. The big one right now that looks all but set is JJ Macias, JJ Macias, moving from Chivas to Getafe in La Liga. It would be, Mao, is what we're hearing reported, a one-year loan with an option to purchase. Do you like the move for JJ Macias? I do. Uh, I, like the, I like that he's out of Chivas. I okay, think he but was do you like Getafe? That's pressure. the question. Well, yeah. I think you kind of like it just because he's going to play in La Liga. Hey, we're going to have... J.J. Macias on ESPN and ESPN Deportes, the new home, mm -hmm. the new exclusive home for La Liga in the United States. So I love that. Now, here's my big question for J.J. Macias. He's always uh, handled himself as a player full of confidence. And you know, the, the line is very thin between being confident and cocky. I don't know if he's been more of the latter, sadly, mm. but I believe he needed to get out of Chivas. And if his second best option is playing for Getafe in La Liga, it is actually a great move because it's a fresh start. It's something that he always said he was going to achieve playing at that level, playing in La Liga Española. So I like the move. Now, if he's going to be successful, if he's going to play, if he's going to score a lot of goals, that's a completely different conversation. Yeah, I don't know that I like it. I got to be honest. I don't like the idea that it's a loan. I understand there's some financial difficulties in Spanish and really all of world football, but I'd like for somebody to put the money down and, and buy them, commit to them truly. Getafe is not a great team, Mal. They were like 15th last year, four points away from the relegation zone. They're going to be a fight, and if he's not scoring, the manager's not going to stick with him. No manager in a relegation fight's going to do that. I worry, and the other thing, Mal is that they didn't score hardly at all last year. Now, you might say that's a good thing no. because they clearly need goals. But at least with the manager, there's some familiarity there. So maybe he gets the benefit of the doubt. I absolutely understand what you're saying. And one of the things you said is Getafe is not a great team. I personally, I personally believe JJ Macias is not a fantastic striker. I think he's good. I think he's solid. But has he proven himself really? I mean, he had a great year for Leon, but that great year, that was 15 goals. That's not a lot. And we all thought, there he is. Finally, we have found our new number nine in JJ Macias. Now let's take him to Chivas, and he's going to take his level uh, up a notch. It didn't happen. And I and I try to make this, this, this uh, reference with what happened with Javier Hernandez when he moved to Manchester United. 
He was top goal scorer alongside our good friend Hercules Gomez, by the way. And he was already a star. Is JJ Macias already a star? No. He's not. Does he have the potential to become a big star? I'm starting to doubt it. And it's not only me. It's Jaime Lozano, the manager for the Olympic team, who had to call um, another striker to be a part of that team in Henry Martin. And maybe Eduardo El Mudo Aguirre is the one getting the nod from Jaime Lozano and J.J. Macias might as well be left out of the Olympic team. That would speak volumes of what the manager and the Mexican Federation think of J.J. Macias. If there's another reason I don't like this move, it's 21 years old. I could think you could make the argument it's a little bit late. Not as late as the next player, which is Luis Romo. He's 26, linked to Celta de Vigo uh, in Spain. What do you think about this fit? Is he ready for Spanish football? No question. I think he's ready. I think he has to go. Uh, I think it's just day and night if we compare both cases. JJ Macias and Luis Romo. Luis Romo was the best player of the Mexican League, not only in the season that saw Cruz Azul breaking the curse and winning the trophy, but overall in the past 365 days. He's been the MVP of that league by far. And I think the way he plays is perfect for Celta de Vigo. They actually don't have a player like that who's multifunctional. He can play as a center back. He can play as a holding midfielder. He also has the ability to play box to box. He has a great range with long passes. He has he he can finish whenever he's inside the box. So if he has the possibility to go and play for Chacho Coder at Celta de Vigo. It would be bingo. It would be like uh, finding gold for Luis Romo. He's ready. He has to go. And I think he'll be successful. Celta de Vigo, a team that finished eighth last year. You know they're not bringing somebody over from Liga Mekis at the age of 26 to sit the bench. He would be a player for right now. Uh, I like the move as well. Another link that is very, very interesting, at least to me, Tecatito, to potentially move from Porto to of all clubs, Sevilla. Mal, you're right, that ESPN plus La Liga deal is looking awfully good for fans <laughs> of the Mexican <laughs> national team. What do you think about this? I, I love it. You agree? Yeah, I agree. First of all, the manager knows him very well. Julian Lopetegui was a big part of Tecatito's development at Porto. And there are certain type of players that Lopetegui likes that actually fit the description for Tecatito Corona. He has Jesus Navas, who used to be a fantastic right winger, even playing for Manchester City and the Spanish national team. Now he plays as a fullback, as a right back with a lot of success. The same thing can happen with Tecatito Corona. And the, the fact that the manager knows his value and understands what he can bring to the table, it would be all but beneficial. It, there were also some talks that linked Tecatito to Fiorentina. They have now signed Nico Gonzalez, who's playing Copa America, transfer fee 27 million from Stuttgart. So that's over. That, that door is closed for Tecatito. But if it is Sevilla indeed, I believe the style of play of the team and the league would fit exactly what he does best. It's time too, right? He was MVP of the Portuguese league. He's yeah. done everything you think he could do at Porto. And I got to be honest, 
I don't like watching him play with Porto in the Champions League. I know it's that right wing back spot. It's not his best role. Wherever he goes next, I hope he gets to play a little bit further up the field. All right, that's it for this edition of Football Americas. Thanks to everyone who was involved. Mal, thanks for bailing me out here at the end so I don't have to say goodbye by myself. We will be back on Monday with another edition of the show right here on ESPN+. We'll see you back.